Pound the Rock is brought to you by the Score Bet. That's right. We brought you the best sports media app, and now we're bringing you the best sports book. The Score Bet offers a safe and secure mobile sports book experience with both pregame and in-play markets. But best of all, it's integrated into the Score and our content to give you the easiest and most seamless sports betting experience. So take advantage of exciting promotions and odds boosts all season long. Download now on iOS and Android. Available in Colorado, Indiana, Iowa, and New Jersey. Must be 21 plus. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, contact 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, and 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey. Visit thescore.bet for more details. Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I'm joined, as always, by fellow co-host Joe Wolfon. What's going on, man? A lot's going on. A lot's going on, because that's the NBA. And apparently, even when you start doing two episodes a week, you still have so much to cover, you feel like you're drowning in it. So True that. Yeah. Let's not even exchange pleasantries, man. Let's just dig right into it. I got no pleasantries for yeah. you, man. Right back at you, partner. <laughs> um, the Blazers. Neil Olshay, done. Olshay, you know, I never, till this day, covering the NBA for a long time now. Do you say Olshay or Olshay? I say Olshay. Oh, Olshay, for sure. Neil Olshay, out (laughs) after a decade on the job in Portland, following the investigation into his workplace behavior, uh, an independent investigation, by the way, it wasn't the Blazers conducting that investigation, of course. Olshay had obviously some success there, the Blazers, Made a conference finals run. They were good for the majority of that time with Dame in the fold, but they were never quite good enough. And O'Shea had got them to a point now where they were going nowhere fast, quite frankly. And he refused to take any responsibility for it, if you remember, uh, following the conclusion of last season. Now you've got these reports that Damian Lillard uh, wants to play with Ben Simmons and that one of the last things O'Shea was doing was potentially talking about a trade in which the Blazers would send CJ McCollum, one of Anthony Simons, or Nasir Little, and at least one first-round pick to Philly for Ben Simmons. Um, You know, the Dame stuff is still kind of hanging over like a cloud. He continues to say stuff like he's got 10 toes down in Rep City and all that crap, but... I I thought since the summer, since when he first started making the comments that the Blazers should have more of a sense of urgency to win and to try to win. And I thought from the time, either Dame doesn't really understand the way uh, team (laughs) building works in the NBA, or he does understand, he knows that they were without avenues to really get that much better. And he was just kind of starting to lay the groundwork for when he eventually asks out. Maybe it's naive of me to continue to think that when he continues to say, you know, he he is committed. But I I still think that. I still think that there's a Dame trade request coming, if not in the middle of the season, like before next season starts. I just think, and I think he knows that. I thought he's known that since the summer. The Chauncey Billups stuff, you know, like that bringing Chauncey Billups in was partly supposed to be for Dame because... I think uh, at the time it was reported that Dame wanted Billups or Jason Kidd, and that hasn't gone smoothly at all. Now there's reports of tension between them. And, you know, we've talked, you've talked especially about whether it's a Billups stubbornness on Billups' part or what, whatever the issue is, the Blazers are playing 
this aggressive trapping defensive scheme without the personnel to do it. And guess what? They're dead last in defense. They're even worse defensively than they've been the last few years and they've already been bad. So just a lot going wrong for the Blazers now. Dysfunction everywhere, even with Shea out. They need to find a new head of basketball ops. What uh, what are your thoughts here, Wolfon? Where are the Blazers going from here? Uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not really sure, but I think you know just on the Olshay front. And look, I don't I'm not out here to defend Neil Olshay. I don't particularly care one way or another. And I don't know. I think the Blazers are kind of keeping it hush hush. What was actually uncovered in the course of that investigation? You mentioned it was an external investigation. It's not like the law firm that was conducting it was making the decision on whether he was going to get fired or not. They could potentially offer a recommendation or more likely just lay out what exactly they found and leave it up to the organization to decide. But the upshot is basically that they can fire Neil Olshay for cause and void the last two years of his contract, which as Shams Charania and Sam Amick reported, had about $20 million left on it. Did not so, realize Neil O'Shea was making $10 million a year. Yeah, that's why. I mean, that would make him one of the highest paid executives in the league. And I mean, I look, I think over the course of his tenure, ten, tenure, tenure, that's okay. His tenure, tenure, yeah. he, uh, he, he did a lot of good things. He, you know, the Blazers had the longest active playoff streak in the NBA. Obviously, playoff success hasn't come in conjunction with that regular season success. But, you know, you take a a small market team and manage to build it up into uh, a consistent regular season winner that is, you know, making it to the playoffs year after year. Like, there is something to be said for that. And I, I just... Like, I'm not saying that whatever went on, I don't know what went on. I'm not saying that whatever happened uh, under his watch, you know, in his administration wasn't worth firing him over. I just happen to be like very cynical about stuff like this. And I kind of tend to believe that if things were going swimmingly in Portland right now, that same investigation could have been conducted and Neil O'Shea could still have his job. It seems to me like a pretty convenient cover for them to get rid of him without having to pay him out for what's left on his deal. And I think in that Shams and Sam Amick piece, they mentioned that he might appeal the the firing for cause and see if he can recoup the remainder of his salary. And again, I'm saying like, I, who knows? Who knows what was found and whether it was, you know, or could be considered above board or not. I think like what's been reported is you know, he had a tendency to be abrasive, to berate people who worked under him, which is not good. And I'm not saying that kind of thing should be going on or shouldn't be punished. It just seems to me like the kind of thing that probably goes on in most front offices around the NBA. Um, so maybe it's worse than that. Maybe it went deeper or maybe this was just an opportunity for Blazers ownership to rid themselves of something they viewed as a problem uh, without having to eat the cost. To take it back to the Dame stuff, I guess, and you sort of mentioning his comments in the summer and how they maybe belied an understanding of team building and the Blazers cap situation and the Blazers trade asset situation. I just think ultimately, like when you have a sort of stayed core like a you have the, the sort of same 
uh, roster personnel year after year and you're kind of running into the same limitations, the, the like somebody has to fall on their sword, right? And first that was Perry Stops. And like you mentioned, you know, Neil O'Shea essentially throwing Stops under the bus and, and not taking accountability for that. But it's just like, okay, what what has Dame been for the last six or seven years? I, I think he's been somewhere between, you know, like the ninth and 13th best player in the league. Would that be fair? Yeah, I'd say so. So, on, so on, on his best days, he looks like a, you know, a top five type player. But on an average day, he's probably like, yeah, 10 to 15. Yeah, I mean, I don't think he's ever really gotten into that top five conversation. Maybe he's come close when he's been on one of his absolute right. heaters. That's but if you look at the whole body best. of work, yeah. it just... So, I just think, given that... And I'm not saying like the, there haven't been moments where the team could have been constructed a little bit more soundly around him. But if you're building around a player who sort of falls within that range... Yeah, that's a fantastic player, but this is about what you would expect that team to look like. And so, I mean, like, think about it. Think about all the guys who are as good or better than Damian Lillard who have failed to achieve significant playoff success as the best players on their teams. Like, James Harden as the best player on his team has made one conference final. With Chris Paul. With Chris Paul next to him. Right, Chris Paul himself didn't make the finals until his 16th season, yeah. when he was in just an absolutely perfect situation, and when you know the second and third and fourth best players on his team were Devin Booker, DeAndre Ayton, Mikael Bridges, and you know before that he'd only made the conference finals when he was playing next to Harden. Who else? Jo- Joel Embiid never been out of the second round. Um, it took Jimmy Butler forever to get past the second round. Anthony Davis had made it out of the first round once. You know, before he went and played with LeBron James, like it's not this idea that like the Blazers owe Dame something better than this or like they have failed him in some way. I just don't think is materially correct. I think that they have not that they've done the best that they could possibly do where there haven't been missteps along the way. I mean, like the the offseason of 2016 is like a pretty good example of a of a misstep that maybe set them back. But this is what teams built around you know like fringe top 10 players tend to look like i think it would be different if dame had been like a perennial top five guy but but he's not he's a he's a phenomenal player and also a flawed player whose flaws specifically at the defensive end of the floor make it tough to construct a team around him that is capable of leveling up in the playoffs so even now i'm thinking okay so let's say they make that CJ trade. Let's say Philly sort of changes its stance because the latest report of what Philly was asking for was CJ plus three first round picks yeah. plus three pick swaps. Yeah. Guess what, Daryl Moore? You better lower your standards, man. Because did you see the way Joel Embiid had to carry the Sixers to the finish line against Charlotte last night? Yeah, the guy The guy is out of his... He's so good. No, it's I, ridiculous. And I'm not debating that. I'm just saying, do you see how hard Joel Embiid is having to work? in friggin' December to drag this Sixers team to what, 500? A game over 500? Well, yeah. I mean, they would be significantly better than that if he hadn't missed a bunch of time with COVID. Like, they were they were rolling before he went out. So I, I'm not necessarily saying that Philly needs to be getting desperate, but I have been saying for a while, it's like, okay, like, 
Daryl Morey is going to have to play ball at some point. Yeah. And I don't think it would like Portland absolutely should not be be putting that McCollum plus three picks plus no. three pick swaps deal on the table. That wouldn't make any sense for them, especially if they're looking down the road and thinking, okay, I, I don't necessarily agree with you that Dame is going to ask out or that, you know, even that Portland would necessarily be under the gun to trade him given how much term he has left on his deal. Yeah, I think but, he's under contract through 2026. Right. So or I think they have time, but they do have to take that into account and think, okay, maybe there's going to be a point where we have to pivot to a rebuild. Does sending control of six first round picks out the door make sense to us from that perspective? Obviously not. No one, no one's given up three first rounders for Ben Simmons. It's not happening. Anyway, let's say they do the CJ plus like a first plus Anthony Simons deal. Okay, Philly decides that's fine. That's good enough. Where does that leave Portland in this Western Conference? Like they're 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 maybe better than they are now, but are they any better than a second round team? No. And any of the like people want to lay this at, at Neil Olshay's feet and say like he's made these miscalculations or missteps, one of which was just like not trading CJ, but Trading CJ for what? Trading CJ for who? Like, what trade was there or is there out there that is going to meaningfully raise this Blazers team's ceiling? I just don't see it. I have failed to see it in the past. People for years were were dreaming up the McCollum for Aaron Gordon trade, which like, okay, how much better does that really make the Blazers if you make that deal? I think, you know, like all of those, whether it's Aaron or was the Aaron Gordon talk few years ago whether it's the Ben Simmons talk now it's very clearly about like balancing the team right or trying to balance a team that has been defensively flawed for a long time now other than Nurkic's best season uh, which was what three years ago now it's on everybody and yeah that's probably been lost in the rush to just solely Olshay's name which again in terms of off the court and like the way he treated people, it, it sounds like his name deserves to be sullied. But I'm saying from a basketball executive perspective, like strictly from a team construction perspective, it seems like in the rush to kind of throw dirt on his name in that regard, people are forgetting that this is an everybody's at fault. And like it took, it took more than just Neil O'Shea not making a move or signing a bad contract or whatever the case may be to get the Blazers here. And to your point, Dame's flaws are a big part of why Portland is here and why they never got over the true hump in the playoffs. I'm not going to go through all of Terry Stott's tenure, but maybe there's things Terry Stott's could have done better before he got the job. I think there's definitely things Chauncey Billups could be doing better now that he is on the job. All of these things add up. But I do agree with you that it's not like, like the Blazers haven't failed Dame in a way that, yeah, like other stars of his caliber haven't struggled with their own teams, right? And it's usually the same thing because they're not perfect players, which again, it, it sounds crazy because we're talking about like a top 10 or like an all NBA caliber talent in in this golden era of talent. But yeah, like we know the way the NBA works. If you don't have like the absolute top five, you're like true MVP caliber player that is almost foolproof, when you're constructing a team where that gives you that like head start where you just have them and you can put four of us around them and like you're probably a 500 team like unless you have one of those four or five guys this is the reality that when you're building around a top 10 guy top 15 guy whatever it is 
you need to build a team that properly accounts for mitigates whatever their flaws and it's not easy and it and and if you really think about it statistically most teams aren't able to do it right because only one team can win because only two teams can get to the finals like whatever your benchmark for postseason success is most teams with a player like Dame don't actually end up doing it now again I still think there are like criticisms to be had of the Blazers that they never did not even that they never traded CJ first but that they never did build a more defensively capable team around them now they tried i guess you know when they brought in Cummington and Derek jones last year a lot of us thought they were going to be a better defensive team if nurk was healthy for whatever reason they weren't um again dame is a big part of that whatever reason yeah so there, there's well, just nurk what nurk wasn't healthy is another part of it yeah they defended at a top five level with nurk on the court last year and this is like part of a big problem i've i've had with portland and the new coaching staff is just like misdiagnosing the problem I mean, and I'm not saying like Terry Stotts hadn't kind of run out of rope and like didn't deserve to go, but it's like, I think Terry Stotts had really rung the most that he could out of this roster. I mean, they finished eighth in defensive efficiency in 2018. They were 16th in 2019. Then Nurk was hurt like the entirety of the next season and they plummeted. But again, he missed half of last season. When he was on the court, they were a top five defense. That was undermined by their terrible bench by playing lineups with Ennis Cantor and Carmelo together. And those lineups were just bleeding points, but like to completely overhaul the scheme and to overhaul it in a way that doesn't actually make its best use of Yusuf Nurkic. And that just seems completely counterintuitive for a team that is starting three guards at the same time, you know, starting a guy who's six foot three at small forward and relying on those players to fly around and rotate and close space just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I actually do think like they have upgraded their defensive personnel. I think actually Cody Zeller has been a pretty big disappointment, but I think Nance has been quite good at the defensive end of the floor. He's just probably not playing enough. And Nurkic, like I think he's not as good as he was, you know, before he broke his leg a couple years back, but I think he's still been quite solid in his role. It's just, I don't think these players are necessarily being put in their best position to succeed. And then obviously like there's the Dame thing where Dame has been by his standards really bad this year. And that's a huge reason that the Blazers are where they are right now. And he's still obviously super important to their offense. Like you see, even when he was struggling, so much revolves around him. He draws so much attention to the ball that it still helps them out enormously. And he's gone out of the lineup and their offense has cratered now. So uh, like he, he is still like, lifting all the boats for 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 the Blazers offense but uh it it hasn't been to nearly the same level that it's been in the past and that's that's part of the reason that they're struggling and obviously like we don't need to rehash his defensive limitations but um you know if if you are as flimsy as the Blazers are at the point of attack then it's gonna be hard to construct a quality defense year after year so it's just, I think there are a lot of people in this situation that are deserving of blame if you want to assign blame. The other way you could go is just be like, you know, this is a, a small market team with a borderline top 10 player that has made something close to the most of its, of its talent on hand that has been at various points, you know, greater than the sum of its parts even and has done its damnedest to stay relevant year after year 
and without being able to attract, uh, you know, a, a big fish in free agency. And short of that, it's like you, you want to talk about roster balance. Like, if you if if you were to trade CJ for like a defensive minded player like like Aaron Gordon or Ben Simmons, obviously that helps at the defensive end of the floor. But the like then you create another imbalance. I think where this is already a pretty heliocentric team which is something that, that Chauncey has tried to spear them away from. And that's one thing that I can actually look at and say, you know, maybe that's not working right now because it's requiring an adjustment, especially from Dame. But I can see the, the big picture sense in doing that and in making them less reliant on, on Dame to handle the ball and be at the center of everything they do offensively. If they trade their secondary ball handler, then it's just like, I mean, they're just, they're just that much more reliant on yeah, Dame on offense. Creating so a Luca situation in Dallas. If we talked about that a few weeks ago, and just like the almost painstaking to watch reliance on one player to create everything for you, it's exhausting right. to watch. Well, I can't imagine what it's like to actually be in that position. That's exactly what would happen to Dame if if they trade CJ for a defense first guy. Yeah, so it's like okay, I'm like waiting for somebody to explain to me how how they just perfectly balance the roster without creating another type of imbalance. I mean, you know, with, with Simmons, I guess at least he can handle the ball and play make, right? Obviously he's more limited at doing so in the half court than CJ McCollum is, but he can still be a hub that you can play around. It may not be like running pick and roll and breaking defenses down at the point of attack, but having him play out of the post, having him play out of the short roll, uh, having, you know, running pitch plays where he's catching the ball on the move and spraying passes out to the corner, like, that, that I actually think would make a certain amount of sense. And I do think if they were able to pull off that trade, it would make them better. But I just don't think it would make them better enough no. to where Dame would suddenly be like, oh, this, this is the team that I've been waiting for to be built around me. This is the team that can go and like win the West or win the championship. I just don't think ultimately a move like that is, is raising their ceiling enough to to change what this team is in the grand scheme of things. What it does though, and and this is coming from me, who's never been like the biggest Ben Simmons guy, but what it does, I think, is it does provide some measure of, if Dame were to still want out after, like if Dame were to want out after that, I think maybe you're not in a lot better shape, but you're in, a, you're in at least a little bit better shape looking like long-term and future-minded wise if you've then got Ben Simmons in the fold who also is under contract for a while, who is younger, who has, you know, okay, you're not building a championship team around Ben Simmons, but like you can build a team and go forward as like a young building team with Ben Simmons as a cornerstone piece. You can't do that with CJ McCollum or whatever's left of this roster if Dame wants out as is right now. And I think that has to at least be part of the thinking for whoever the hell is going to be running this basketball operations department in the near future. But in terms of the like short term goals, like, they would their ceiling would be and i don't even know if they would hit this ceiling this year but their ceiling this year would be fourth place in the west and maybe winning another a round again a single round and that's in a year where the west is weakened and battered by injuries because with average health even with damon ben i don't think they're better than the denver team you know, that's per- or the Clippers. No, or the Clippers, obviously, when Kawhi's there. So you're looking at what you make that trade. And it's like if if the West had average health and you make that trade, your ceiling is something around the sixth seed. You still might only barely avoid the play in. Right. And so from that perspective, I, it's almost like, what is it all for? But like I said, I do think the one part of it that maybe not enough people are talking about having Ben Simmons in the fold 
would give Portland um, some sort of leg up in what might then turn into a rebuild should Dame want out anyway. Well, I mean, if yeah, if that's if that's what they're thinking, they might as well just like go and trade Dame for Ben Simmons and then just kickstart no, the process but, but, right but there. No, but because that's not good asset management. Like, if you can turn CJ into Ben Simmons, and then yeah. you still have Dame, right? Like, and then even if Dame wants out, yeah. oh, then you trade Dame. Like, the the what if you could what if you could turn Dame into Ben Simmons and Tyrese Maxey or something like that? Well, now you got me thinking. Nah, I probably still don't because I still think I still think you can get. Simmons with uh, using CJ and I like Maxi, but I don't know, man. Here's the thing. I think, I, sorry, I sorry, here's what I'd say. I think you can end up with a greater overall asset collection if you trade CJ in a deal that gets you Ben Simmons and then trade Dame separately. As opposed to trading Dame for Simmons and Maxi and then trading CJ for something else later. Yeah, I mean, I don't really know. Like I, I, I mentioned this on a past episode. I think it's it, the the Dame trade market, if it were to ever materialize, would be really tricky to navigate because I just don't think like everyone looks at Dame Lillard and sees a, a super duper star, which he is or has been for the last few years. But it's also a guy on the wrong side of thirty with well known defensive concerns who makes a ton of money, which like whatever, from a salary perspective, it's, it's what it is. I don't necessarily think that teams are caring about that, but when it comes to like cobbling together the salary to make a deal like that work and then cobbling the future assets together to make that tantalizing enough for the Blazers to pull the trigger, it's like, man, I just don't know how many teams are actually going to be willing or even should be willing to take that plunge because in the the vast majority of cases, like it's really like you're, you're kind of narrowing it down to a team that is in a similar situation with a similarly, you know, solo star system, a guy that needs another star to share the load. And that's that like, that's the team where they're like, we don't care. We're throwing out like all our assets at you or we're like, we're throwing, you know, all the role players that we can at you. And we're just going to go forward with these two guys, basically like the Lakers did with LeBron and Anthony Davis, right? Where it's, I think at one point in time, they literally had three people under contract. It was like LeBron, AD and Kyle Kuzma after they made that deal. And then they just filled out the roster and they went and won a championship. It's got to be a team like that. Like maybe, you know, maybe it's Dallas saying, okay, Luca, Dame, that's our bet. Take everything we have. Which is not that much. I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't want to go on too much of a tangent here because um, I could go on for 20 minutes about this. But uh, and I'm actually writing about this right now. The Mavs, the Mavs don't have the goods to make a deal like that, man. They, they, so they really I mean. don't. It's like you like, go, go through the league and find me a team that, you know, I, like Boston, I guess. Boston was one of the teams that I thought, you know, you put Jalen Brown on the table. Now, I'm sure there are Celtics fans out there saying they would <laughs> they would give up Jalen Brown for Dave, but I think you should. Um but yeah, no, Boston is one of the teams that I thought uh, makes sense in terms of going after him. I mean, you combine Tatum and, and Dame. Yeah. You raise that team ceiling, I think, considerably, even as good as Jalen Brown is. I think Dame is another level. Even if it does come to a point 
where where Dame demands out, which I'm I'm still not convinced was going to happen. But even if it does, I don't think it's going to be as easy for the Blazers to trade him and just get an absolute haul in return as as some people might think. He's going to be making more than forty eight million dollars three years from now in his age thirty four season. Yeah, and so that's what I mean. Like a, a team signing up for that just has to have another like established superstar in place, and they and they have to be desperate enough to want to give up, you know, pretty much anything else they have in order to get the second guy. Defensively challenged, not huge point guards also don't usually age considerably well. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so it sounds like it's all roses in Portland. (laughs) It's, uh, look, it's, it's not great, but it's also not the worst because I I still think. I think it's pretty close to the worst. Well, the worst what? Like if if it does come to a point, and maybe it's not even Dame forcing his way out. Maybe it's a mutual decision or maybe it's the Blazers saying we've taken this thing as far as we can take it. It's time for us to go in a different direction. For all for everything I just said about like how challenging it might be to find like an adequate return for Dame, like you're still going to be in a place where you can start from scratch with a pretty ample base of like young talent or draft picks or whatever it is you need to sort of kickstart a rebuild might be a long and painful process, but it's, you know, having that talent in place right now makes it a whole lot easier to kind of start that rebuilding cycle over again. So yeah, thinking from a fan's perspective, like if you're a Blazers fan, you know, whether you admit it to yourself or not, I think you can see the end of the road for the Dame era. And I don't even mean end of the road in this case for like, okay, he's going to be gone soon. I just mean end of the road. Like, you can see that the ceiling has been hit and is in the past. Like, you know, the end is closer than the beginning, obviously, in the Dame era. Your trajectory is a downward one, not an upward one. The team you're currently watching is, you know, a middle of the pack-ish at best. Like, that's when I say it's pretty close to the worst. It's just like from a fan's perspective. Yeah, don't get me wrong. Like, you know, cherish watching Dame. He's still a fun player when he's on. But it is a sobering thought to be a Blazers fan right now and to watch his team and to know where it's going, given, you know, how exciting some of the last few years have been and how hopeful it was at times. You know, this is the beauty and the and the madness and the beast of pro sports, right? And being a sports fan is that there are ups, but there are downs too. Got to cherish those ups, man, because... You know, when uh, even if you don't win, your team doesn't win a championship, they have a good run and make a good playoff run here and there. Yeah, it ends up being disappointing, but you know, I hope you're cherishing them because the the other side of it is this: it's all about cycles. Like every team goes yep. through cycles, team building cycles, competitive cycles, and I think you're right. I think the Blazers are kind of approaching the end, maybe of this competitive cycle, and maybe there's a move that they can make to crack it open a little bit wider, but. You know, at the end of the day, I think it just sort of is what it is. The ceiling is going to be, if you're comparing it to like the absolute cream of the crop in the West right now, it's going to be lower. I just, that's that's just the reality. And I think that can be fine if you just accept it for what it is. But I feel like, you know, the the Blazers have sort of made that worse over the years with with the angst and the drama and you know dame making these remarks about like the team needing to act with more urgency and 
maybe expectations that have been out of whack and a defensive scheme that doesn't make sense with the personnel on hand and misdiagnosing the problems. Like I mentioned before, it's just, uh, I think there's a situation in which they could look at what they have and just be like, okay, this is what we have. And we're going to try and make the absolute most of it as opposed to trying to be something that they're not right. Which I feel like is what they've done this season. Like, okay. Uh, anyway, whatever. I, I feel like maybe we've spent enough time on this. No, I, I, can, I get it. You're calling them I, food I can, Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think that's that's to me the bottom line is like I I feel if if they were just sort of able to lean into their strengths and like figure out a way to try and mask their weaknesses as opposed to being like, no, we've played this style of defense for a long time and it hasn't worked. So we're going to completely overhaul that and play a different brand of defense, even though it doesn't necessarily make any sense with the guys that we have. Like, I don't know. That's just uh, like that just feels fundamentally like a mistake to me. Yeah, I mean, I agree. But that's what the Blazers are right now is one big mistake. <laughs> and I think that that accurately summarizes exactly what Joe Wolfon was trying to say there. Yeah, thank you. I should I should just have you summarize all my points with with your take on it. Yeah, with my with more of like the take that you definitely weren't you were not actually trying to say. Um, yeah, let's right. let's do that from now on. All right. On that note, let's take the break. Come back. Talk some bulls. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, as I mentioned, we are going to talk some bulls uh, before we get out of here. But before we do that, it's time for a new segment that we will bring you once a week for the remainder of this month. And that is Talking Trash, presented by KFC. Talk trash, don't make trash. So what we'll be doing during this segment is highlighting an instance from the past week of players beefing or some sort of trash talk related tidbit from around the league. So this week, Wolfon, I want to know how you feel about the Celtics official team broadcast getting petty with their Chiron and graphics after wins. And the two most prime examples is, and when I say the team broadcast, it's NBC Sports Boston. So after a game in which the Celtics beat the Lakers and Schroeder had a huge game and they're talking to Schroeder post game on NBC Sports Boston. And, you know, they put up the, the Chiron, the Dennis Schroeder's name and his stats for the game. And then there's also a note that says, y'all paying Russ 44 million, question mark, LOL. And then in a recent game, when the Celtics beat the Sixers and they were doing the post-game interview with Jason Tatum, same thing, the Chiron, the graphics are up, showing Jason Tatum, his stats. And then the note for Tatum is still Embiid's father. So I want to know your thoughts. Uh, my, my take is that I can't imagine the league being happy about it. Listen, as a, mm-hmm. as a neutral fan, I think it's hilarious. I think it's funny. I think, you know, part of what makes the NBA great at, over the course of a long season is that there are always just these kind of like ridiculous, whether it's beefs or social media interactions, like whatever it is that make the NBA very unique compared to other sports. But an official team broadcast getting in on it and like starting it, starting when there's none there. You know what I mean? It's not like, Oh, Tatum and Embiid have beef. We're going to like add to it. Now, Schroeder and Russ maybe have in the past. I don't remember. But yeah, what what other point guard has Russ not true, had beef true, with in the league? True. Like, but like on. it it just, 
yeah, I think as as fun as I think it is, I definitely think it's petty. It's randomly petty. And mm-hmm. I do wonder, and not even wonder, I can assume how the league thinks. Like I would imagine the league is not happy about that, right? Like one of their broad it's one thing if it's like a highlight show after the game or I don't know, you know, you know what I mean? Like something like that and someone taking a shot, but like for them to put it on as part of an official league broadcast, taking shots at players like that, especially in the case of Russ, where you're taking shots at like his sal, you know what I mean? His collectively bargained salary that a team gave him. You think him. that's worse? You think that's worse than saying one player is another player's father? No, I'm not saying it's worse. I think from a league perspective, I think from a optics wise, sure, no. But from a league perspective, I don't know how happy the league is about like a team's official media partner openly mocking a contract that a player was given. You know what I mean? Like, Russell was within stealing that money and NBA team gave it to him. And again, it's funny to make fun of it, but don't think the league would be happy about one of its official broadcast partners doing it, you know? I think they would see that as like, leave that to the fans, leave that to like the talking heads, leave that to Pound the Rock. Yeah, well, I mean, leave that to NBA Twitter, right? Like that is all very much the language of NBA Twitter, which I feel like... I guess I don't know exactly where the league would stand on that because I think they recognize that that's where a lot of its fan base is coming from or migrating to. That's where a lot of the discourse around the league is taking place. So sort of co-opting that language and using it on official broadcasts is maybe a way to connect with a different audience. Um, You know, it it sits like a little bit uncomfortably with me, especially... I don't know. I, I did Embiid comment on that, by the I way. I'm I don't think anyone. Ha- I don't he think he did. I don't because, think Russ did. Yeah, because with Embiid, it, like, I mean, that guy loves trash talk, and I, yeah. I could see him taking it in stride and like having a sense of humor about it. Although, like, you just never when it comes to somebody's parents, like, you just never know. True. And well, Kyrie, remember Kyrie had the? Do you remember when a reporter asked something about? Uh, this was when he was about playing. LeBron. LeBron yeah, being like kind of like, like the father figure of the team, and Kyrie, understandably so, like laughed in the guy's face and said, "No, I, I have a father, man. Like, it's not, it's not LeBron." So yeah, and uh, it's funny because I, re- I actually remember this was a couple years ago, back uh, you know when Horford was uh, in the middle of his first stint with the Celtics before he came back uh, after a game. There was a Chiron that said that Horford was. Uh, averaging a team leading 2.0 beautiful eyes (laughs) and i like that's great like you know that's that's not taking shots at anybody that's just like that's just really funny to me and i think in general if stuff isn't you know crossing the line i'm great with that like make it fun like make it funny this like it's it's basketball you know like we we take it seriously because it's our job but like you're not to take it that seriously you know there's room for jokes And um, I think that's that's all great, but uh, I do think there's a line, and I don't know. I, I mean, I, I feel if it was an issue for the league, then I, I kind of feel like NBC Sports Boston would have heard about it and maybe stopped doing it by now. Yeah, fair point. Um, or maybe just like the league hasn't hasn't been attuned to uh, to these chirons and and hasn't had time to sort of settle it yet. But I don't know. I think for the most part, it's pretty fun and. And harmless. Also, though, if anyone on the Celtics should be getting the 
is still Embiid's father, Kyrie. And you'd think it would have been Horford, like, because remember for the longest time, Horford, you know, he never had the, like, Mark Gasol-level dominance against Joel Embiid. That's his real basketball father. But the Horford did have his number for a long time, and in the playoffs as well. So, if anything, the Celtics should have said Horford is still his father. Calling, like, yeah. Tatum. So, your issue is with the accuracy yeah, of come the Kyron. Come on. My issue is not with the, with the personal insult. It's with the accuracy of who, in fact, is the father. Sounded like Maury as I read that. Said. <laughs> anyway, that was our Talking Trash segment. Shout out to the real MVP of Talking Trash, KFC. By 2025, all their consumer-facing packaging will be fully home compostable, putting them one step closer to being the GOAT, the greenest of all time. All right, Wolfon, back to business here. Let's finish this off and let's see if we can actually stick to our plan. 10 to 15 minutes or less on the Chicago Bulls. DeMar DeRozan now in health and safety protocols. Uh, Alex Caruso expected to miss three or four games with a hamstring issue. Even without those two guys, they still beat Denver at home last night. Zach Levine and Lonzo Ball were great. Uh, as was rookie Ayo Dosumu. They are second in the East and own a top five overall record at 17 and eight. They have a top six offense and a top five defense. Them and the Warriors are the only teams who are top six on both ends. Numbers-wise, they look pretty legit. DeMar DeRozan has been, what, at worst, a top-five MVP candidate through a quarter of the season? They are... Uh, ah, man, come on. At worst, a top-five MVP I'm not saying candidate? he's a top-five player live. I'm saying if you were if you're voting on MVP right now, you're telling me five guys have been more valuable through a quarter of this season, taking no other games or years or whatever into account than DeMar DeRozan has been this year. Yes. I disagree. <laughs> I okay. I think I think Jokic, Curry, and Durant have been on another level, and Giannis. Yeah, uh, and I think Demar is right there as the the from a value perspective this season has been right there with anyone else after those four guys. I think he's been that good, and the Bulls have been that good. Now, the one thing uh, I will say they are subsisting, which I, you might assume them to be a team led by DeMar DeRozan on mid-range shots and long twos. They don't get a lot of threes, but the one thing I'll also say is on the flip side to that, defensively, they're also giving up a similar shot profile. They're limiting threes. Uh, they're giving up a ton of shots. But they are giving the up a ton of shots at the rim, yes. And they're not even defending those that well. They're middle of the pack to a little worse in terms of the way they defend those shots. They give them up at a high rate. They don't give up a lot of threes, and they do also force a lot of long twos. So a bit of a mixed bag there. Vucevic, I think, has been really underrated defensively. His actual at-rim defensive field goal percentage is not great, but I think he's just been, like, solid. Um, and obviously, the guys in front of him have been great. DeRozan and Levine have their issues, but Levine, I think, has been pretty solid defensively, playing the best defense of his career. And then, obviously, Caruso especially and Lonzo have been good in front of Vooch as well. So... What's your take on this team? As I said, a lot of the underlying numbers paint the picture of a legit contender. Are you ready to believe that about this Bulls team? Like, what have you been your major takeaways watching them? I think fringe contender is probably where I would put them. I think I would still be surprised if they made their way to the conference finals, but it definitely feels much more plausible to me than it did before the start of the season when I kind of capped their ceiling in my mind, at least at, at, at like the second round. Um, I think, 
I mean, I don't want to get into matchup minutia. I just want to sort of talk about them. But I, you know, thinking about okay, can can they be more than that? It's like I still feel like they run into big time matchup problems against the Bucks because the the rim frequency that they allow, coupled with the kind of shaky rim protection, would really concern me. And I just they don't have anything resembling a one on one matchup for Giannis. Like when it's come to defending opposing power forwards or big wings it's like they trust Lonzo and Caruso to do that those are the guys who are guarding Kevin Durant I mean those are the guys who are guarding Julius Randle yeah Giannis is just kind of a different animal you know like that's I don't think they can survive that way yeah and you put Lonzo Ball or Alex Caruso on Giannis instead of Kubo and say your prayers and start packing for next season boys yeah yeah and like to be fair you know with them and, and their defensive scheme it's never just one guy like they're a very help conscious team uh, they double the post aggressively. I, I mean, and with Vooch, I, I expected them to play, you know, almost exclusively drop with him. And he is coming up to the level a whole lot more than I expected him to. And it, it's it's working quite well. And I think, you know, you mentioned him being underrated defensively. We've seen in the past, he can succeed in a system where there is a strong defensive infrastructure around him and where he is not being left on an island, right. you know, to guard one on two or to have to navigate too much space because look, he, he's, he doesn't change direction all that well. And as a rim protector, it's just like, he doesn't get off the ground really. Right. So it's like, the, he, those aren't his strengths. He's got in a conservative drop scheme for the most part. Where, uh, yeah. Where he's not asked to do too much. Yeah. Just but be he's a big a, body and a smart player. But this is the thing that, that's surprising to me is that he's not playing in a conservative mm. drop scheme. He's actually playing in like a fairly aggressive scheme and I think it's still working because the Bulls' weak side defense has been so airtight because they're not blowing rotations, because they're providing cover for him when he needs it. And, you know, also I will say, so you mentioned his rim-protecting numbers, like his his opposing uh, opponent field goal percentage like at the 58%, rim. Which isn't bad. 57, 57%, which is close to league average, right. basically. He had about the same defensive field goal percentage at the rim in 2018-19, which was, I would say, at least statistically, yep. his other best defensive season. Yep. And again, one in which he was surrounded by really good defensive players. Aaron Gordon, Jonathan Isaac, different there because those are forwards compared to the Bulls doing it with guards. But um, but he was similarly insulated. And like you look at every other season of his career, he's well over 60%. So... I think that's interesting how, like, because I think the Bulls are supplementing him with extra layers of help, and Lonzo and Caruso especially are just really good at doing the help and recover thing, stunt and recover. He just, he doesn't have to do it all by himself. And if he, if you can pare down his responsibilities, he's going to, like, he's a very solid rebounder. He's a big body who can just sort of get in the way. He's always been good at rim deterrence, right? Mm -hmm. Like, even when, like, if it, if it comes to actually preventing shots uh, you know from going in uh maybe that's not his strong suit but he can be pretty good at just sort of preventing guys from getting to the rim in the first place so i think yeah he's been solid in his role and the other thing is like a big part of the bull scheme is pre-switching I, I think they probably do that more and better than any team in the league and especially caruso like he is always the guy who is pre-switching to keep vucevic out of the high ball screen actions and they're blowing so much stuff up by doing that. And they're protecting Vucevic to such a great extent that uh, it's just really made his life a whole lot easier. And I think, you know, you don't you don't typically see top five defenses that are anchored 
on the perimeter. But that is what, you know, Caruso and Lonzo are yep. doing right now. Uh, and Caruso in particular, I just think, first of all, he might have the stickiest hands in the league. And I think probably the best in the game at doing that, like, poke ahead steal when yes. guys try to cross him over. Yeah. I would be really interested to see if, like, anybody's tracking this, how many times somebody has tried to cross him over this season and, like, the percentage of times that that actually works versus the percentage of the time he gets that poke ahead steal because it feels like 80% of the time it's getting picked off. His his hands and timing um, defensively, like, guarding one-on-one, are some of the best I've seen, man. Like, it, it is really uncanny to watch him do it over and over again. And whether he's actually getting the steal or just, like, poking the ball away, deflecting it, getting a hand on it in some way, uh, it really is uncanny to see a guy in this day and age with the perimeter talent out there to just consistently trouble great ball handlers the way he does. For sure. Uh, so I think, you know, he's got a strong argument as being, like, the best point-of-attack defender in the league so far this season. Um, because, you know, not only like creating turnovers and, and guarding one-on-one, but it's like really, really good at getting skinny around screens and pursuing when he's chasing over top. So when they are playing Vooch in a drop, again, he's providing that rear view pressure and making it so Vooch doesn't have to defend one-on-two. He's been really, really good as a chaser. Um, and, and like guarding one-on-one, I mentioned like guarding up the positional spectrum, bigger players. He's been superb in help side defense. Uh, and the pre-switching, like he's doing everything to 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 raise the floor for that Bulls defense. It's been it's been really cool to watch. Uh, and Lonzo is basically doing all those things. I would say he's just doing them like a slight bit worse. And when those two guys are on the floor together, it's like this is this is what makes this Bulls team work. Is that you look at their top five? Every single one of those guys' weaknesses is covered and then some by multiple other players strengths so like lonzo at the offensive end not remotely an inside the arc threat right i think he's shooting like 37 percent from two-point range and that's on like maybe one and a half attempts yeah. per game but demar Derozan is an absolute yeah. mid-range maestro and zach levine can get to the rim at will and vooch can post up or hit push shots or short roll for mid-rangers they don't need Lonzo to be a two-point scorer. They are more than set for two-point scoring. They just need him to space, hit spot-up threes, and be a connective passer, all of which he can do very well. Uh, and then, you know, at the other end of the floor, it's like, okay, Levine and DeRozan, despite improving, not the best yeah. off-ball defenders. Yeah. Well, great. You have Lonzo and Caruso there to do all of that work. And they are going to be your primary helpers. And that allows DeRozan and Levine to sort of focus on their primary assignments. Like it just, the pieces all fit together really nicely. Yeah. And I do think like, I I agree with you off ball, but on ball, I I think Levine this year has been like, just like solidly average. Like, I don't think he's been a detriment on ball the way he has been in the past. Right. And as with Vucevic, I just think that it it really helps that he can focus on that rather than having to go outside his comfort zone and do the things that he's not as good at. Uh, And I I just think that's what makes this Bulls team function as well as it does is just the way that guys can cover for each other's weaknesses. And um, it's uh, they they have made the puzzle pieces fit together really snug. And I think, you know, just from a process perspective, like – I like the way they play defense because there is a good, healthy mix between 
aggression and conservatism. I think there's a lot of intention behind what, what they do. Um, but because Lonzo and Caruso, I feel like are so good at helping and recovering, like they're able to provide a lot of ball pressure without giving up too much on the backside. And the benefit of that is they, like they create a ton of turnovers without like the, the other teams that are doing that are, are giving up a ton of like shots at the rim and corner threes. And, and the bulls are giving up a lot of shots at the rim, but they are really suppressing opponent three point attempts and the turnovers they're creating are fueling what has been one of the best transition offenses in the league. Like they're maybe as good as any team in the league at turning those turnovers into points at the other end. So that's been a huge point of success for them. Uh, you know, and, and to your point about DeRozan, look, no, I wouldn't put him in my top five uh, MVP ballot, but he he has been so good and maybe the single best isolation scorer in the NBA this season. He's at 1.29 points per that possession in isolation. That's madness. That's absolutely obscene, especially given the volume that he's doing it at. Uh, and, and his mid-range shooting has, I mean, it's always been good, but it's been on a whole other level this season. And, you know, we talked in the past about it was kind of forgotten because those Spurs teams weren't very good, but he had really turned himself without acquiring a three point shot into a super efficient scorer. I just think he's, he's hunting his own offense a little bit more now than he was in San Antonio. When I think he was focusing on playmaking a bit more. And um, he's one of the few guys who's been reliant on getting in the line in the past that hasn't seen any kind of dip in his free throw attempts. And I think the reason for that is not, not that he's not a grifter and doesn't foul hunt, but he doesn't do it in a way where he's like jumping sideways into guys or he's like seeing the defender kind of extend his arm and he's going to like the side swinging rip through move. It's more like he's just really good at getting defenders off balance. He has better footwork and better balance than, you know, like 99% of the guys in the league. And he uses that to his advantage with pivots and up fakes and all these different moves to use, you know, defenders leverage against them essentially and get them to foul him. And that, that hasn't changed. And those aren't the fouls that aren't being called right now. So he's continued to get to the line at a really high rate. And, uh, you know, I, I just, I don't see a lot of holes that you can poke in what the bulls have done so far. I think, I guess looking ahead to the playoffs and like, what is this team? Are they like an inner circle contender? I would still worry about their weaker defenders getting hunted as, as playoff teams sort of zero in on them with more refined game plans. Um, They're 29th in the league in three point attempt rate, which I think only the Spurs are are worse, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which again, so like, you know, we talked last week about changing shot profiles and what can and can't work. And how teams that can thrive in the mid-range zone are maybe built to succeed against the type of defensive schemes we're seeing today. You know, the Bulls belong in that conversation. And they actually do get to the rim at a decent rate. So, like, it's more just like, uh, on the whole, their two-point scoring is quite sound and can maybe make up for the lack of three-point volume. I thought it was pretty funny that Brooklyn game just watching, like, DeMar and Durant basically go tit-for-tat on mid-range jumpers down the stretch. It was awesome. It was great. Um, but I still, again, like if I'll bring the Bucks up again as a potential matchup, a really good rim protecting team um, can just sort of bottle them up in the mid range and maybe win the math battle that way. That would give me a little bit of concern. Um, so I, I think there are still some issues that might limit them in the playoffs, but it's not like 
you know, looking at their defensive profile, I don't see a whole lot of luck. No, agreed. In what they're doing. Like they, they haven't, they haven't been lucky in terms of opponent three point shooting. Um, maybe if you look at like Vucevic's rim protecting numbers, you think, okay, that's bound to regress, but like they're going to, I think they're going to keep forcing turnovers. Like they're, the, the way that they play defense so far feels pretty sustainable to me. And, and go ahead. No, and, and Vooch's rim protection numbers maybe regressing a bit aren't, isn't the kind of thing that can tank this defense. You know what I mean? It's not right. the kind of thing that can tank a defense that's operating at a top five level. Yeah, I agree. And then again, it's like they have counters to that or like ways to protect yeah. him with like the pre-switching and the help that they provide. It's just, uh, I don't know. They're, they're, they're well coached. They, they execute their stuff super well. It just kind of, it just kind of makes sense. And it's a well-built team that is really coming together quite beautifully. And I think uh, it's going to be fun to watch kind of how high they can climb and do they stay in that upper crust of the East or maybe do they start to slide back a bit toward like the four or five zone? Cause, yeah. Cause so far it's been almost entirely positives for them. I was thinking yesterday about how uh, like a Bulls Heat matchup would be really fun. I think I think that'd be a great matchup. Uh, maybe Jimmy versus the the Bulls as well. But I, I was thinking just even in terms of like the Bulls ultimate ceiling this year. I agree that the Bucks matchup just I don't think the Bulls have the size to come out of the East. I I don't think they can beat the Bucks four to seven. I don't think they can beat the Nets four to seven even without Kyrie. So. For me, I, I have a lot more faith in them beating this Nets team than in them beating the Bucks. Matchup be wise, I agree, but I still wouldn't. I still don't think they can. Um, and so I think, like, I think they could beat anyone in the East other than those two teams. So for me, it's kind of like the, the way the bracket works out, right? If um, you know, if by some miracle the Bulls snag the one seed or something, and Milwaukee and uh, Brooklyn end up in a second round match, then yeah, there's a path to the East Finals for the Bulls. But short of them accomplishing something like that, where they avoid both those teams with the first two rounds, I still think the second round is probably their ceiling, which is fine. I think this, if they do that and, and then re-sign Levine, like I think, good looking out in Chicago, it's 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 fun. The, the last thing I do want to say, and it's more of a question for you, because I think I know where I'm leaning now, but so DeMar Rosen now, it's like a nine-year run. If you look at his last nine years, this is a guy who, first of all, has been very durable as well, but almost over a full decade has averaged about 23-5-5 while almost always playing for a like solid playoff team. Probably going to make his fifth all-star team this year. He's going to end up with 20,000-plus career points. Is DeMar DeRozan a Hall of Famer? Uh, like if he were to retire tomorrow, I would say no. No, but if no. He, but if you if you project him out, even say another, you know, average health, another two or three years, he cracks the twenty thousand point mark, which he should do probably like next year in two years. Like I said, f- he's going to end up with say makes the All Star team this year, which he should five plus yep. All Star games. A guy who for like a decade plus, maybe twenty three five and five guy, always a top two ish player on a like a solid playoff team. Yeah, I think if he keeps doing what he's doing now for, you know, another three years, say, makes a couple more all-star teams, maybe another all-NBA team, like he might make all-NBA this year. Yep. I think he'll be a fringier case, but I do think, you know, there aren't many 20,000-point scorers who aren't in the right. hall. And I, I think he'll definitely have a case. I'm not, I don't know, I'd have to think about it a little bit harder. But, um, you know, I think, like when all is said and done, I don't think that he'll necessarily have a, any less of a case than Carmelo does, for instance. 
which I think people consider Carmelo to be like a stone cold lock, which is probably true. But um, yeah, DeRozan, like Melo, has the Olympic gold medal. Not as many of them, but he's got, hey, I mean, that stuff matters, right? It's the Basketball Hall of Fame, not the NBA Hall of Fame. I know, but you know where I stand on American players and Olympic gold medals but and whether or I, not that should factor into I told you what the good, ca- the good counter to that is that, yes, well, if, you, if you're on the American team, you're almost surefire to win the gold medal. It's also a lot harder to make the American, like, if you win an American, like a gold medal with Team USA in basketball, even in a year where, okay, maybe there were some injuries and tomorrow, like, you'd still have to be an insanely damn good ball player to even make that American team. That's fair. Um, I, I, another thing about DeMar is for, for that nine year stretch that you're mentioning, I think every single one of those years, except for maybe one of them, his teams were worse. And in some cases, significantly yes. worse with him on the floor. And, and sometimes that's unfair to him right. because it's not like those teams were necessarily bad with him on the floor. It's, it's the just benches like were good or... some of those Spurs teams had really good benches. You know, those Raptors teams, like it was like the Kyle Lowry and bench units were always destroying opponents. And so that made his on-offs look worse. But, you know, pretty routinely, his teams have been worse and, and like significantly worse defensively with him on the floor. This year, the Bulls are like 14 points per hundred better with him on the court. So that's been a, an interesting reversal. I think a, a lot of that is like the DeRozan and bench units now are really potent. And the Bulls bench as a whole, I think, has been really solid. I mean, you mentioned Io, uh, Javante Green, who I think is also in health and safety protocols right now. Uh, but he's been really active defensively. Tony Bradley, I think he's done. I mean, you know, the Bulls might wish they had the the Daniel Gafford trade back, but like Bradley's done a a perfectly capable job as their backup center. I think he's really strong defensively and and really good at doing the hedge and recover thing. Like he he's quite nimble and arguably even better at at doing that than Vucevic is if if maybe not quite as sound positionally on a consistent basis, but um and obviously offensively he's not bringing a whole lot, but defensively Bradley's been good. I, I just think you know, you I talked about their top 5 and how how those guys all fit together. Their bench has also been really strong. It's just a, just a really solid team, man. Yeah. And this was a really solid episode, Wolfo. You think so? Yeah, I think so. Do you, want to, do you want to do your, your pithy summary of my of my Bulls take? <laughs> if someone wants to just like skip to the end of that segment, just just summarize for them what no, I think about the I'm Bulls. O- I'm only going to do that when, uh, when it's a negative summary so that I can put a negative hot take in your mouth because I know um, – I know that you love the Bulls are trash and they'll never beat the Bucks in a playoff series. There there, you go. See, there you go. You're getting it now. All right. We, we still went over an hour. I know our listeners probably don't mind, but we are, you guys might not believe us because we keep telling you we're going to try to go shorter and we're still taking up an hour of your time, but we promise we are going to try to make these a little shorter given that we're going twice a week or I don't know, maybe you guys don't care. Maybe you guys just like the content and you're fine. Although it'd be a little easier for us on the editing side if we <laughs> if we cut these down. But anyway, fan shout out of the week. Michael Binger from Sacramento, though he did say he's a jazz fan in Sacramento. And I will say, uh, sorry, he said he's a jazz fan for life. I wanted to throw that in there. Uh, and I will say, Michael, that is probably a good choice given the uh, team that resides in your city of Sacramento. Michael reached out via Instagram DMs, says he's been a Pound the Rock fan since 2019 and hasn't missed an episode since he started listening, but that it finally paid off this year after he picked up Tyrese Maxey 
in fantasy ball because we hyped him up early in the season. So, uh, Michael, we are glad that after two and a half years of listening and never missing an episode, we were finally able to make it worth your while this year with uh, some positive fantasy basketball reinforcements. So thank you, Michael, for reaching out. Hope you enjoy this shout out. We've got multiple shout outs in the bag for the next few weeks. Loving the fact that we've had so many people reach out over the last couple weeks. And I have tried to respond to all those people and let them know they will be getting a shout out at some point over the you know, next few weeks or so, sometime this month probably. Uh, but even if you haven't yet reached out, we will always need fan shout outs and always want to give someone a fan shout out going forward. So hit us up on Twitter, via email, via Instagram. Let us know how long you've been a listener, uh, what you think of the show, where you are listening from, and we will get you a shout out on a future episode. Until one of those episodes, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Fasharo. Pound the Rock.